Ephesians 5:22 Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body but as the church is subject to Christ so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she would be holy and blameless so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies He who loves his own wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church because we're members of his body for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife the two shall become one flesh this mystery is great but i am speaking with reference to christ and the church nevertheless each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband this is god's word well good morning we're going to continue through the book of Ephesians chapter 5 uh Jeff thanks for reading there's no surprise what the topic is today right we're going to talk about marriage what i'd like to do instead of just diving in at verse 22 and plowing through the text i'd actually like to jump down and start in verse 31 and spend some time also in verse 32 because to me when you think about marriage what's outlined in verse 31 and 32 are really the key to understanding this portion of scripture this this thing this entity called marriage and certainly without understanding the foundational elements we can get lost in the specific ask of God's design for us so let's start in verse 31 probably a verse that we've seen read many times at weddings it says for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh just an observation this is from genesis 2 you'll notice here this has the fingerprints of god's design all over it i say that because it's given this exhortation shortly after adam and eve were created There are no parents at this time. There are no children at this time. But yet that's what the plan, the design that God is outlining. So I want to be clear, make no mistake about it. When it comes to marriage, God ultimately decides what marriage is. Not society, not culture, it doesn't change. Let's look at verse 32. An interesting passage of scripture to say the least. 
It says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Now, we have to spend some time on that word mystery. You know, Pastor Curtis explained to us mystery when we typically encounter it in the New Testament, how to interpret it. Do you remember? Because we see that word in Ephesians chapter 1. We see it in Ephesians chapter 3, speaking of the same mystery. And Pastor Curtis said, when we see that, we can't think of, I know everyone, who doesn't like to play the game Clue, right? But we can't think of it in terms of a mystery, like a Sherlock Holmes novel, where we just kind of capture enough clues that we figure it out, the true meaning. That's not how it works. What it truly means is just, there's just new revelation here. There's new information that God's word through Paul is providing to us. Now, there's 21 mysteries listed in the New Testament. One that Pastor Curtis was referring to was this mystery of bringing Gentile and Jew together in one entity called the church. Another one you might be more familiar with is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Behold, I tell you what, a mystery. You shall all not sleep, but in a moment, in a twinkling eye, you shall all be changed, and the dead in Christ shall be rise first. And what's that? That's just new revelation pertaining to the second coming of Christ. So I ask you, what mystery is there about Genesis 2.24? It's fairly straightforward. It's been acted out many, many times. Thousands, millions of times. Like I said, we've, we see it read many times in weddings. What's, what's, what's so mysterious about it? And it's interesting about this one because I said there's 21 times or mysteries listed in the New Testament. This is the only one that has the adjective great attached to it. Your text may say profound. Embedded in Genesis 2.24, it's very important you understand this because it's the key to God's design. Embedded in there is significant, profound theological truth. And that before, in eternity past, when God had this idea of creating marriage, he also had this idea of creating his church. And that that first marriage in Genesis 2, although people didn't realize it, is actually a foreshadow, a picture of Christ and his church. Let me give you another example, more practical If you have a wedding album, if you were to go home and break that out, Champ reminded me how long I've been married. Thank you, Champ. I certainly wouldn't want to get that wrong in this message. That would be very problematic. So 23 years ago, but if I look at that picture, I got to get beyond the point that I definitely had more hair. It was a little bit thinner. But as you look at that picture, and hopefully, I'm not sure, did your photographer get that moment where there's two individuals and you say, I do, and now you become one? You establish that covenant with God? If you were to look at that picture, I want you to realize what you're looking at is actually a copy. It's a copy. It's a copy of something else. It's a, it's a parable. It's a, it's a metaphor of something else. And the original is Jesus Christ and his church. So, with that understanding of God's design, now let's step into the language of what God's design is 
for a husband and wife. And now I will tell you, the, the language is challenging. The language is challenging, but that's, that's God's design. So let's look at it in verse 22. What does it say? Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Let me pull this verse out a little, little bit. Pull it apart. You'll see first it says, to your own husbands. So I want us to be clear. We're talking about this oneness, you know, this incredible oneness that was established in Genesis chapter 2 is the same oneness that we're talking about here. So wives, be subject to your own husbands. So this is not some broad paradigm as to how females and males are supposed to relate to each other. This is within, within the marital union. Also, you see what's the motivation? The motivation says as to the Lord. The wife wants to follow God's design in this because of her love and reverence for Christ. Very similar language or motivation to we see in verse 21. Now, I will tell you, this is not a very popular verse. <laughs> no, make no mistake about it. In fact, the mere mention of it, you know, is there's a visceral reaction in our culture today as, as we read a verse like this. And what I'd like to do, I'd like to push back on some of that, to be honest with you. You know, I think we make a mistake in reading into the text things that, that's not there. The one thing I want to do is, and it's, it's a mistake, so I'm going to point out two mistakes that I see. One mistake is somehow we link inferior or inferiority with submission. And I, I want to be very clear. I want to blow that out of your minds. I want to blow that out of your minds. You obliterate it. You need to remove that thought as you approach this passage. Okay? Let me give you some reasons why. Just back up into verse 21, what Blake covered last week. You know, it says this. It says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Let me ask you. When we read verse 21 last week, did you have the same response to say, no, sir. There's no way I'm going to submit to another person. I'm not inferior to another individual. Okay? So one thing I want to be clear is what God is really asking here is something that should be very familiar both male, female, husband, and wife, I would say it's the very fabric of our society or as a, as a Christian walk. We should be very comfortable with the idea of submission. Let me give you another reason. And this is why it's critically important within the marital union, particularly for the husband, that he not look down upon his wife, take this verse out of context, and treat his wife in a inferior way. God doesn't want you to do that, husbands. God does not want you to do that. Why? Because he tells us in 1 Peter 3, 7, what does he say? Husbands, to live, to dwell with your wife and recognize her as what? A fellow heir of Christ. So it's not a situation here. It's a fellow heir of Christ. And it is critically important in God's mind that husbands employ that implement, believe that, and practice that. Okay? Because what does he do? He, attach, he attaches a warning in verse 7. Now I'm going to paraphrase it. 
he basically says a husband who's not treating his wife right has that viewpoint. What God says, stop praying. Stop praying and go to your wife and make it right. Now, that's a paraphrase. What the text actually says is for the husband who's treating his wife like that, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Critically important, a husband treats his wife in the correct way. Let me give you another one. It's just a a question. Jesus Christ lived a life of submission. Was he inferior to his father? Was God the son inferior to God the father? Okay. You, You definitely want to answer that question, no, or we would move from perhaps... Maybe a disagreement of some roles within marriage to a a pretty big theological error. So those are some reasons. I want to push back. Let's eliminate. You know, it's it's, you bring inferiority to that text, and it's like quicksand. It's just going to sink the whole design of God's marriage. Secondly, there's another mistake I see. It's a reading of this passage and seeing that there's no submission on the husband's part. Now I want to be clear, the text does not say that the husband is to submit to the wife. But once again, it's it's not as if verse 21, you know, you cross that off, check the box and then you enter into marriage and now all of a sudden verse 21 is no longer applicable in the life of a husband. So, um you know, the other thing is, can you honestly, right, let's stick with God's design, the design, the model for Christ, for the husband is Christ and his church. So just a question, can you say, uh, look at the life of Christ and say it wasn't a life of submission? Okay, submission, this idea of submission, I think once again, I want to get us in our, our minds, we've got to be very comfortable with it. I if you have a Bible with you, turn to Philippians chapter 2, which is a great chapter on humility. And I, I think we struggle with passages like this today. Humility is, is something that are, is you know, being eradicated from our, our society today. Listen to what Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says. So this is everyone. Not married. This is, this is everybody. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, it's critically important that as believers, we walk, especially in marriage, with tremendous humility. I'll read on because it gives us a great picture of Christ and his humility. Verse 5, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which also... In, existed in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, with that background now, hopefully that some of that design is, is being etched in your mind. Now let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and go through the verses here, verse 22, a little bit more in, in detail. You know, submission, what's, what's it look like? I think that's the million-dollar question. What's it look like in a, 
in a marriage, particularly uh, from the wife. The word submission appears 40 times in the New Testament, that verb. Now, the interesting thing about it, if you were to take all 40 instances and juxtapose that word of submission, you would see that broad underlying theme which Blake talked about last week. It means to place yourself under. You know, carries forward, but it has a very different application based on the relationships that are involved. Let me give you some examples. Romans 13, right? Christian, what, is, what are Christians supposed to be? We are supposed to be subject, submissive to the government, to governing authorities. So it's safe to assume that a wife's submission would, within this missist, tremendous thing that God's designed, this oneness with her husband, would look differently than how a Christian would submit to governmental authorities. I'll give you another one. In Luke chapter 10. The disciples are now given authority from Christ. They're excited. They're out preaching. And they come back to the Lord. What do they say? They say, say Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And now, in that instance, there's not even a choice. It just, apostles would speak in that case, and also certainly when Jesus would, in that realm of the demonic realm, they didn't have a choice. And then lastly, I'll just pull this last example from Ephesians chapter 1. It says in verse 22, speaking of Christ, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So creation itself is subject to the Lord. So it looks a little bit different. Let's read on in the passage because it gives us a little bit more color as to what it might look like. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. What I did, I, I tried to take a, a, you know, we're hearing this idea of submission, headship. I took a crack at a definition. I know that's always a little, little bit dangerous. Um, I borrowed this day's definition quite a bit from John Piper, a fairly well-known pastor, theologian. I tweaked it a little bit, um, but this is my take on it. So I, I see submission this, in God's design for the wife is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's servant leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. Okay, there's some things that I like about this definition I want to pull, pull out. One, it's a divine calling. It's a choice. But make no mistake, this is a divine calling that God is asking of the wife. To honor and to affirm. Later on in the text here in Ephesians chapter 5, you know, Paul's going to simplify and ask the wife to respect her husband. You could cross out honor and affirm and put respect. And what? Her husband's, the model is Christ's actions towards the church Servant leadership. That's the goal. That's the target as husbands. And to help. Very important word. We don't want to pull, go through the text and start pulling oneness apart and start making things mutually exclusive. In many ways, God views you as one. So this is to help, to partner together, to carry it through according to what? Her gifts. And I like that word gifts. Because sometimes you 
read definitions, what does this mean? And you get into some kind of mechanical definitions. And God's gifted each husband, each, each wife differently. And I think the key is to work collectively to maximize their gifts. All right, so that's my take, or at least my stab, at what submission looks like in the context of a wife. How about biblical headship for the role of the husband? You know, I started taking a crack at a definition uh, of biblical headship, but, uh, you know, it, it was funny. I was you know, trying to say, life of Christ, modeling, service leadership, what does that look like? And, you know, my mind just kept coming back to an image that I saw uh, last week. And perhaps as the image comes up, you'll see, probably looking at, I think your first reaction is saying, that looks, that looks similar. That looks similar. So, so yes, and I'm not sure if Blake's here, but uh, I think confession is in order. I stole this from Blake. So, you know, I kept writing out, what does is, what is this headship, servant leadership look like? And I kept coming back to uh, the picture of this. So I think this is what the ask is for the husband uh, uh, to, to, to model. So that's it. Uh, submission, headship, best picture certainly within God's design of a Christ love for the church. Let's read on and dive into some specific asks or exhortations that God is making of the husband. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's interesting, and the first point about the wife, and I called it submissive love, I actually inserted the word love in there. In this passage of scripture, God doesn't tell the wife to love the husband, which is, it's, it's unusual. It's conspicuously absent. And I think the, perhaps why is because that idea of submission to respect, to honor, to affirm, embedded in there is the greatest act of love that a wife could give to her husband. But here, God gets specific to the husband and say, love your wife. And we're going to say it five times, okay? And this word love is agape love. It's not eros, it's not the sexual love, it's not phileo, the brotherly love. It is agape love. So I want us to be very clear on what the ask is of the husband, this agape love. Pulled together a definition. Fortunately, I didn't have to craft this one. What's agape? It's a willingness to sacrifice of yourself for the highest good of another person. So husband, that's, that's the goal. That's the goal. One thing you'll notice about this definition, it's unconditional. It's unconditional. That's hard, isn't it? That's what God's asking us to do, love unconditionally. You know, because sometimes you'll hear, you know, this illustration, marriage, you know, you give 50%, right? You meet my needs, and then I'll give 50%, 50-50. Some people will take that illustration and really ratchet it up a notch, right? Say, no, you give 100%, you meet my needs 100%, and my goal is I'll meet your, your needs 100%. That's not agape love. That's not agape love. Agape love, sticking with that illustration, I want to be very clear, is you give 100% 
and you expect 0%. Now that is hard, but that's agape love. It has to be that way, right? Because our model is Christ towards the church, right? So if you disagree, I would say, well, husbands, you know, take out a pen and paper, okay? And I want you to then write out, list out all the things that the church did to warrant, to deserve, to merit Christ's love, the sacrificial love that Christ gave to the church. That would not take long to review those pages, those papers. There'd be nothing written there. Because, right, there's, there's nothing Christ gave, right? There's nothing that the church did that demanded, that warranted Christ's love for that. Now, at this point in the message, you're probably saying, either, you know, some perhaps, I, I, don't, I don't want to love like this. I, this. God's design is, this is a tough ask. Or perhaps you might be saying, I, I can't love like that. That is, that is supernatural. And if that's your response, I say, I agree with you. I agree with you. And then what I would do, I would say, well, take your Bible, and where you say it's tough, you can't do I would draw a dotted line back into verse 18 that Blake covered last week. Right? Because this is the key. You know, leading up into this passage, and theologians call this the household code, because we're going to go to relationships. Next week we're going to talk about parent and child. Okay? You leading up to it is this idea is that we need to be spirit-filled. So in verse 18 it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And Blake explained, you know, Paul's contrasting that with drunkenness, literally being under the influence, you're not in control. And what my promise, or what God's promise to you is, based on God's word, that if you're living a spirit-filled life, God can work in your life, and you can work and follow God's design and love like he's called us to love. So, you know, and that's the key, is to, with all of our relationships, we've got to be walking in the spirit. We can't do it in the flesh. Verse, let's read on, verse 26. And as you read through this passage, you know, Paul's going back and forth. You know, sometimes he's talking church, Christ. He's talking husband, uh, wives. And it's almost like you're going down a lane and sometimes he's crossing over. And I think here in verse 26, it's more for the church and Christ, this picture that he's outlining here, um, that he might sanctify, having, sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And I think that's all church stuff because that's past tense, right? Hebrews 10.10, 10, by this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Past tense, that's what we possess. You want to see what we possess in Christ now? Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Pastor Kurt, we are in Christ. We are in Christ. Your version where it says sanctify might say holy. It means literally to be set apart. And how do we do it? It's this idea of washing of the word. Um, and it's interesting, that word, the, the, the uh, word in the original there is rhema, not logos. 
And by rhema, it is the preached or spoken word. So how do you person become sanctified, set apart under Christ? By responding to the gospel, by responding to the preached word. So we move from verse 26, what I call positional sanctification, into progressive sanctification. And that is the goal of every believer to become more and more Christ-like every day. And he does it, he gives two negative examples and then two positive examples. First, he says two negatives is, you know, this idea is no spot or wrinkle, no sin. And then secondly, and this is the husband towards the wife, you know, he should be assisting his wife in this process towards holy and blameless, becoming holy and blameless. Now, although the passage itself is saying, husband, this is what you should be working with with your wife, I want to be clear. The wife should be working in the same way with her husband. Okay? I can say that because that's what it says in Ephesians 1.4, right? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be what? Holy and blameless. Before him, Paul's just taking what he's already told us and applying it in the context of marriage and saying within that mystical, incredible union, you should be working towards each other to become more and more Christ-like. So my question to you, particularly for the husband, since that's what the passage is referring to here, is, is your relationship with your wife a catalyst for her to grow spiritually, okay? To do that, you've got to, husbands, you've got to engage. You, you can't do it from the sidelines. You know, you've got to be an active participant in yourself or else it's going to be very, you're going to be stunted. You're going to be very limited. I'll give you an illustration. I, kids are getting a little older, but I like to coach. I should say I used to like to coach. The basic sports, I know enough to give them some you know, initial instruction, correction, you know, I'll tell you, that all came to a screeching halt when they started playing lacrosse. Uh, I never had played it. I, I just don't, don't understand it. Uh, but what am I? I'm still a coach, so that coaching still needs to come out. So, but I'm limited. I'm limited in what I can say. And it's basically what I hear on the sidelines, which is, It's probably a warning, so if you're at a game with me, be careful what you say because I'm probably going to repeat it. But my go-to, what I hear all the time, is run through the ball. Run through the ball. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but it sounds wonderful. (laughs) So I I say it a lot. But my go-to phrase above all is shoot low. Shoot low. I don't know. As often as I hear it, that must be the single greatest characteristics of a lacrosse player. So what do I say? It doesn't matter what the game condition is. Shoot low. Shoot low. Hey, and if the shot is low, I change it. Shoot lower. In my mind, I don't think you could ever shoot a ball low enough. And I I say that, you know, just to say, you know, kind of a a fun illustration. If if you don't engage husbands, you're going to be very limited in what you can do in that sanctification process. And let me add just a little warning to this. You know, if you peek over to verse 10 of chapter 6, we're going to exit this portion all about relationships. And the context is going to change quite a bit. 
and you're going to see very, very graphic language about the spiritual battle. And we're going to cover that in a couple weeks. But make no mistake about it, whether you engage or not, the enemy is going to engage. And Satan is the great divider when it comes to our relationships. Right? And if you think about it, we started in Genesis 2. You know, the fall was really the first attack on marriage. Right? And how did it start? You know, because he's separated. He finds them separated. And, but how, how did it work? It works by saying, has God really said... Is, is it, can God, what you're, what you're saying here in Ephesians chapter 5, is, is that, that can't be true. God's design can't be true. Be very careful of how the enemy can work in, in your life. Let's read on. It says, verse 28 and 30, which really kind of summarizes this wonderful union of this oneness. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. You know, this is another passage, kind of like submission. It's, it's certainly a crystallized and acute here for, within the relationship of a marriage, but this idea... We should have echoing in our minds part of the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is really just a a very clear illustration, example, exhortation of of that principle. Okay? And he does it in two ways. Uh, he calls out this idea of nourishment and cherishment. Nourishment is really to provide sustenance. Husbands should be providing for their families. And then secondly, to cherish. The word literally means to warm. To warm. You know, it's funny. I think cherish is one of those words that you know you see it. It's it maybe tough to des- describe it, might, you know, what it looks like. But you, if you see it, you, you know it. Does any, I watch a show called American Pickers. Does anybody watch that show? I love that show. And I, I don't collect. At least I, if you look at our basement, you might think otherwise. Now, that, that's a real mystery, actually. Because we clean it out, and then it just it comes back. I'm not sure how that happens. But in that show, it's always interesting, because they'll start out with, you know, typically they go to a barn that's a, it's, it's dangerous to go in. And the rule is... Hey, if you can dig it out, name a price, it's yours. And then typically you'll go to a, another barn and it's at least structurally sound. But then like the husband, they build the crescendo up. The husband and wife say, you know, should we sell them, you know, like our personal collection? And then they, you go into this room and the lights are just, wow. And you could eat off the floors. And you look at the objects and you say, Wow. Those people, they cherish those items. And no, no, I can tell what they do. They've invested time. They've invested energy. They, 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 you ask them about where they got it. They tell you the day they bought it, what they were wearing. They know everything about it. They truly cherish those items. Now, initially, I was going to ask the husbands, do you cherish your wife? I think everyone would say yes, right? I'm going to change the question. Make it a little bit more open-ended and say, give you a homework assignment. 
Because what God's asking us here in his design, it's, it's, it's supernatural. We could never ultimately fulfill it the way it's outlined in its fullest purity. Ask your wife, is there, is there a way that I could cherish you more? Verse 31, verse 32, we've already covered. Verse 33, it's a conclusion. It's actually written like a conclusion. That's what Paul says. He says, nevertheless, one of the paraphrased versions says, to sum it up. And I think what Paul wants here is, you know, this imagery, Christ and the church, and he doesn't want individuals to get lost, so to speak. So he wants to crystallize what's the one thing God wants a husband to focus on and what's the one thing he wants a wife to focus on. And that's what he does for us in verse 33. And before I outline what each of those are, as I was reading this passage, my mind was drawn back to the marriage conference we hear, held here a few months ago. Certainly blessed by it. Hopefully you were able to attend. And that was Barbara and Angelo Giuliani. He's a pastor. She's an author. Real neat, neat couple. Interesting testimony. But I remember they have a lot of experience in counseling. And the one thing they said, talking about marriages that are hurting marriages that are broken, the one common theme that they see time and time again is a wife saying that she does not feel loved and a husband saying he does not feel respected. I've heard that before myself. A husband who doesn't feel respected and a wife who says she doesn't feel loved. Let's see what God says the one thing he wants a husband to work on and one thing a wife to focus on. Nevertheless, let each individual among you, just two other observations about this text. He switches the order. Now he's going to speak to the husband first, so don't read too much into this in terms of who goes first, says what. You're one. And more importantly, he changes from plural to singular. And in all the passages that deal with relationships... This kind of household code, so Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3, Titus 2. It's always in the plural. It's wives, husbands, children, parents, fathers, except this passage. He really focuses in and personalizes it for each person who's married. That's what it says. Let each individual among you also love his own wife, so the husbands to love even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. Why don't we pray? And as we pray, I'd like to, you know, this message is all about oneness. If you're here with your spouse, could you just grab hold of his or her hand? And symbolize that oneness. You know, in two weeks we're going to talk about the spiritual battle. Um, marriages today, it's, it's tough. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of things going against the tide of marriage. Going against what God has outlined here for his design. So let's pray. Father, we come before you. We read the exhortation, the challenge that you've laid before us, particularly as those who are married, and and we cannot do it ourselves. So we pray that you would teach us to love how you would want us to love. Lord, we ask and lay every marriage here at Town down at your feet. 
You're the originator. You're the designer. We pray that you would bring healing, that you would bring forgiveness, that you would bring mercy, that you would bring grace to the marriages that need it. For those that who aren't married and have a desire, Lord, we pray that you would be leading them to a spouse who believes in you, who believes in your word, and believes in your blueprint. Amen.